0: This
1: production
2: on the Osiris Podcast Network.
3: Hey everyone, set break is finally over. So glad you stuck around. Sorry it took a minute. Those bathroom lines were really long. But now it's back to our regular schedule, which is good because there are a bunch of Grateful Dead studio albums still left to explore this season. For this episode, we'll take a look at Wake of the Flood from 1973. But before we get into that bag, I'll speak with Dan Horn, who many of you will know as the bassist extraordinaire for Circles Around the Sun and Grateful Shred. In addition to being a low-end maestro, Dan is also an accomplished engineer and producer who has contributed to albums from the Skiffle Players and Cass McCombs, to name a couple. You can catch Dan with Circles and Grateful Shred at the Skull and Roses Festival in Ventura, California from April 2 through 5. Skull and Roses is a dead-themed extravaganza with a all-around killer lineup that also features sets from Bill Kreutzmann's Billy and the Kids, O'Teal and Friends, Melvin Seals and the Jerry Garcia Band, our pal David Gans, and many more. Check out the roster and grab tickets at SkullandRoses.com. All right, we've got a lot of show to unwind, so what do you say we bang on the bus and see what Dan Horn's up to? <laughs> Dan, how is it that you fell into this whole Grateful Dead-averse?
2: I guess it's mostly through having a common ground with other musicians as to like what songs we would jam on when we get into like jam sessions and stuff.
3: But you're also in the Grateful Dead's backyard, so to speak.
2: Yeah I grew up in Palo Alto.
3: I imagine some of that is baked in.
2: Yeah no it's true.
3: So when did all that jamming for fun on Dead Tunes develop into a professional career?
2: Um, I was playing with Jonathan Wilson. I was playing bass. We actually started playing a few Dead songs in the set and then um, we actually got invited to TRI.
3: Ah Bob Weir's studio
2: right. That was cool and we got to hang and. Bob set in on a few songs. Nice. Yeah.
3: And that's a pretty swank facility as I understand.
2: Yeah. It was it's like way over the top. It's crazy. Yeah, he spared
3: no expense on that one. Yeah,
2: it's a cool spot.
3: Why do you think that there's like less rigid genre lines these days?
2: A lot of it probably would have to do with the um accessibility of so much music. Totally. A lot of people talk about that, you know. Like, when we were in high school, it was, like, a big deal to, like, find a new band. You'd have to, like, order tapes. And also, I don't know if it's still like this, but your whole, like style was based on the music that you like and it was really obvious yeah
3: exactly you
2: know your t-shirts and your what kind of pants you wore.
3: I'm wearing MC hammer
2: pants right now you know had a lot to do with the music you liked. so
3: I can get a sense of your influences but it's not at all derivative because your personality really comes across no matter what the setting is and you play in a lot of different kinds of situations uh, what would you say was the most significant in terms of you developing your voice on the instrument?
2: Well, it took a long time. <laughs> I'm always changing.
3: you got to keep evolving, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. Not really trying to copy. I mean, I think part of it just has to do with, like, I'm not that good at copying stuff.
3: <laughs> I can relate to that.
2: So, like... If I try to learn something, I, like, kind of learn it, and then I get bored, and then... That's
3: where the personality
2: comes from. Right, yeah.
3: And if we're talking about the dead, I mean, I think that's where their style came from, too, as individual players. Yeah. One thing I really like about your playing is that you play to the song, which I really admire, but you're also open to taking this shit anywhere. How do you do that from band to band, session to session, night to night?
2: Uh, I mean, try to stay relaxed.
3: Yeah, harder than it looks.
2: Yeah, try to kind of... Keep the variables to a minimum, I guess. Get your sound dialed, chill out before the show. Yeah, well, that's also harder than it sounds. Well, I think having an awareness of if I'm going to get stressed out or I'm not having fun or something, kind of aware of that and be like, okay, just stop for a second and remind yourself that it's supposed to be fun and purposely take the pressure off yourself. Exactly. That's something I do.
3: Nice. But like everything else, you have to remember to do it. You have to work at it.
2: Yeah, it takes practice.
3: I mean, you're also a producer and doing studio work is kind of a different mindset. I mean, you do stop a lot. There's multiple takes. There's on the fly edits and rearrangements and songs can completely evolve differently in the studio. Uh, What's your approach there?
2: I mean, it's pretty similar. Um, But, yeah, sometimes in recording, sometimes you have to do the opposite. You have to add a little stress. Right. Like, one of the things is, like, for me, I I like to feel like everything is kind of important, you know, and you're, like, that's what an audience is good for because they're listening. And it doesn't matter if there's, like, one, one person in the room or it's, you know, a huge show. Someone's listening, and so it's important. And that's the same thing with the recording session. You know, you want people to think, like, okay, this is a moment that we're trying to capture yeah, intention, not just like something that's going to get edited later and like, you know, not even going to sound like what we're doing. So
3: totally. It really helps to have that attitude that you're willing and ready to commit to what's happening musically which is incredibly important today since everything can be edited and redone and quantized and pitch shifted and stuff like that so committing to a performance is kind of a lost art yeah and again what i love about what you bring to this is authenticity you know you're very present as a player and it's impressive
2: yeah cool so good job
3: thanks so here's one that's probably a little bit Difficult to talk about I know everyone was hit really hard by Neil's passing Uh, We were lucky enough to have Neil on the show and it was absolutely delightful. I was glad we got to do it in person It was really meaningful uh, For all of us and you know, the circles family was obviously profoundly affected Uh, So if it's not too heavy, can you reflect on that a little and maybe give us some insights into how you decided to carry on with the project?
2: You know at first obviously the shock of it all and despair that sense of giving up
3: I can't imagine man
2: but then um I think it, it was pretty immediate where everybody was kind of like supportive of moving forward and not giving up which was nice and it was and it's pretty universal from everyone you meet people going out of their way to be like we love you guys and want you to continue so yeah it ended up being a kind of a required thing almost <laughs> wow
3: yeah that's good And, you know, you were close to Neil, obviously, but you're also helping the fans and people who loved him for that uh, to heal, you know, come to terms with this in a more celebratory way. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the project is so heavily identified with Neil for obvious reasons, you know, the way everything came about. But, you know, even when he was with us, you guys evolved quite a bit. And I imagine you continue to evolve so There's a real musical rationale for wanting to continue as well.
2: Yeah. Well, I think part of the cool thing is, like, Neil set this thing up for everyone to kind of just be themselves, you know? Yeah. So we have this, like, vessel that we've created with Neil, and now we can kind of continue that with whoever we play with, where we kind of do the same thing that he did with the band, where we just, whoever's going to play with us gets to do their thing and kind of express themselves, and that's what's going to make it work, you know?
3: Yeah, that seems like exactly the right approach to both you know carry on his legacy and then also allow the band to continue to evolve yeah yeah i mean i can at least picture neil being like oh yeah totally you guys should continue doing this
2: yeah who knows but yeah Uh, i think so
3: i mean it'll continue to evolve like everything uh and speaking of i also love what you do with grateful shred i mean to me the term tribute act doesn't even really cut it because there's just so much high level musicality from every member and again everybody's personality comes across And what I love about you guys is that you evoke the dead in a way that doesn't, you know, seem like cosplay that comes across as fresh. Is that approach deliberate or is it more of a factor of just what happens when you put these personalities together in a band like this?
2: Well, probably both. (laughs) It's funny because you say deliberate, (laughs) deliberately (laughs) non-deliberate. Well, what could be more Grateful Dead like?
3: Yeah. I mean, it works. I saw you guys in D.C. uh, not that long ago, and it was amazing. Uh, I keep using the word authentic, but that's really what it was. You were evoking the spirit of the dead without being some sort of carbon copy. (laughs) Maybe the reason you're not a carbon copy is because your harmonies are fucking really good.
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah, I know. That's that's a bonus. It's
3: like all that time the the dead spent with Crosby, Stills, and Nash. If it had actually stuck, I mean, God bless them. Jerry can sing me the phone book, but really, your vocal situation is locked down, and the Apache guys are just amazing. So
2: yeah, that's key. Well, I think you know one thing you got to remember is the group and its songwriting. Yeah, and then the jams come out of that.
3: Exactly.
2: So that's kind of how we treat it. You know.
3: Right on. And, you know, you could throw a rock and hit a Grateful Dead cover band these days, right. uh, and it'd bounce off several other <laughs> Grateful Dead cover bands. But what I really appreciate about Grateful Shred is that you're kind of restoring the whole Bakersfield vibe that the Dead has, yeah, too. Totally. You know, the hot country chicken picking and the three or even four-part harmonies. It's awesome. Yeah. And then you can take it for a walk, and you really do. Um, how do you balance that and, and still keep it fresh?
2: Well we try not to rehearse (laughs) so that helps it's not going to work for everyone
3: but okay so there's
2: always that feeling of um like we're one step away from complete catastrophe
3: again very grateful dead
2: yeah but contributing to that is we keep trying to add songs which is cool or bring stuff back that we haven't played in a long time so i mean we rehearse sometimes i'm just saying it's like we do try to we do keep it loose just by lack of um having spare time but it makes it fun
3: I mean I wouldn't want to try to execute Slipknot without at least a little bit of rehearsal
2: yeah we practiced that one a, a lot <laughs> we actually had a funny joke about it because it, like when we were learning it the keyboard player at the time Jerry Bourget, we call him he um, was kind of helping teach some of the parts and he was doing this like scat thing <laughs> and it turned into this whole joke of like scatting the the oh, yeah. uh, those parts
3: Classic acapella, yeah.
2: and, and then it's like, <laughs> oh god, again, you know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the scatting worked. I
3: mean, next time you can do it in the round. Yeah, exactly, we should. So, tell me a little bit about Skull and Roses because I'm on the other side of the country. I have not had the chance to get out there, but you've rocked it before. Uh, you know, what would you say to a newbie? Like, if I were going to go this year, what should I expect?
2: Yeah, it's such a cool setting. You know, it's just so old school like i got to go to the laguna seca when i was a kid and it kind of reminds me of that or it's like dusty and you know kind of like these barns and sheds and cool it's like a tiny you know dirt racetrack so it's just super (laughs) simple and the scene is just cool everybody's super nice and shares that common bond of of the dead music so
3: you know that's really great to hear because so many festivals today seem super manicured yeah
2: yeah it's a cool scene for sure
3: So I have this big project that has to do with the Grateful Dead and the social history of California and spiritual stuff. And so I've got to make it out west again soon. So maybe I'll schedule a trip to have it coincide with Skull and Roses, which, by the way, is Thursday, April 2 through Sunday, April 5 at Ventura County Fairgrounds. So, man, if I can make it work, I'll see you out there.
2: Yeah, no, it sounds perfect.
3: So what do you think it is that the dead are having a moment again? I mean, rock music in general is kind of niche with the current generations, but there seems to be an unending appetite for Grateful Dead music and Grateful Dead style music. Like, what's driving that?
2: Uh, Well, it might be that kind of, like you said, rock music's become a niche. So now there's like this desire for that super loose, pure rock and roll.
3: Yeah, it's like it's allowed to be that way again. Yeah,
2: you you could say it's a backlash to the like polished pop. Right. Like finding that exploration and uh, freedom in in music. And a concert too, just going to a concert and being like, okay, this is going to be an experience in itself. I don't care what songs they play. You know, I don't have to hear like the hit played, you know, exactly like it sounds on the record. This is like an experience that is never going to happen again.
3: Yeah, I mean, you could watch it on YouTube, but it's not the same.
2: Yeah. (laughs) And then telling your friends.
3: Yeah, I think it really rewards a certain type of listening, too. You're really there.
2: Yeah. For me, I was just joking, actually. The best three hours of the day are when you're on stage, no one can bother you.
3: (laughs) Sounds nice. (laughs) Can you give us a hint of uh, what's on deck for you and your your various tribes in 2020? Yeah.
2: um, Well, the Circles Around the Sun just announced our record.
3: Man, I'm really looking forward to that. It's bittersweet, though. Last one with Neil.
2: Yeah, it's a cool record. Um,
3: and when does that drop again for the folks at home? Uh, March thirteenth. Oh, sweet! You know, I can see that from here.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, you know, we have a, um, a video we're about to drop, and so you know, we'll have a few, couple singles that'll be out. You know, and then um, planning tours around that.
3: Nice. Who's playing guitar this time out?
2: We wow. haven't totally locked in which guitar player is going to play but you know they've all been kind of announced and we've, we've done some stuff with different people so
3: well I'll sit in with you in DC just so I give
2: you some advance notice there you go <laughs> <laughs> yeah we have some DC stuff that I think we're about to announce actually so nice. um and then um, same with Grateful Shred we have a few things in the works
3: excellent well you know just keep up the awesomeness across the board because it is a real joy to behold from over here in the cheap seats oh yeah
2: cool man yeah it's fun
3: it's wonderful to have you on the show and
2: hope to talk soon alright well hopefully I'll see you when we come to DC
3: yeah man alright I think it's time that we get into Wake of the Flood Eduardo Kevin let's do this So we're talking about Wake of the Flood, which was released way back in October 1973, the first album to appear on Grateful Dead Records. And in order to have their own label, the band needed to become a proper business. So they had Sam Cutler on hand. He was ditched by the Stones after Altamont, and he was working on maximizing the band's concert opportunities. For example, the Watkins Glen show with the Almond Brothers and the band, which drew more than 600,000 people, about half of whom actually paid to get in. Uh, mm-hmm. Cutler was one of those London street urchins who grew up the hard way, and he got to know that at least half of show business is intimidation, <laughs> you know, or else you just don't get paid. And then there was Ron Rakow, a hustler, if there ever was one, who ran the label, Jerry was actually really involved with Grateful Dead records, which counters the impression that he avoided decision-making I just think that when Jerry was actually interested in something he'd lead with his ideas or uh, his sense of what was useful and fair But anyway, the setup was that Sam Cutler helped the band earn more on the road and then the band would reinvest some portion of that money into Grateful Dead Records and Ron Rakow's assorted schemes. Uh, And it was under these circumstances that Wake of the Flood was created. I want to talk about how it sounds real quick. Like, sonically, to me, it sounds like a sweat sock and tapioca. It's super muffled. <laughs> I checked it on a couple of formats. Like, the result was the same, whether it was the vintage Grateful Dead Records pressing mm-hmm. that I actually have, or a high-res FLAC file. I listened to it on headphones. I listened to it on Sonos. I listened to it in the car. It kind of just sounds a little bit dull. Uh, it was recorded at the record plant in Sausalito, and that place was outfitted with 24 tracks, Also had plenty of nitrous oxide on hand and even gas masks that hung from the ceiling. So that might have had an effect on the mix, but it's definitely not the studio because Rumors, the Fleetwood Mac album was recorded there, Mm -hmm. tons of other classic records. Honestly, I think the band was still finding their feet as producers of their own recordings. But nevertheless, it's a great listen and it's got interesting Rick Griffin artwork that always struck me as sort of biblical Oh, and the dead worked with the FBI on this record.
0: I don't know if you guys knew Uh, that, but... I didn't actually know that.
3: No joke. They were actually having problems with it being bootlegged by the mob. Pre-release oh. uh, so they literally called up the FBI who did manage to tamp it down And it makes me think like the Grateful Dead born out of CIA acid experiments and in cahoots with the FBI <laughs> You just can't make that shit up um, But let's get to the music the album opens with Mississippi half step up down to I can never remember the order of words in that song title. I probably got it wrong here But it is hands down one of my favorite dead songs There's live renditions where it's almost gypsy jazz, but the take here is a little bit more restrained. Still, every toodaloo has a kind of carny charm. It's like the dark end of the midway where the real sordid shit goes down. I think that's present in the studio version. Um, I'm sure our listeners are familiar with the colloquialism blue balls, so I don't have to explain it, which is good (laughs) because I'm kind of a prude. (laughs) But my point is I can hear that particular affliction on Jerry's solo. I also love that Phil either cannot or... Outright refuses to properly walk that baseline. <laughs> like, I don't know what color his balls are, but they clearly have their own gravitational pull.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's easy to find terrific versions of Mississippi Half Step. I'm really partial to the English Town '77 version, which I think, oh, yeah, is you know 13 or 14 minutes long. Um, you get the full Jerry on that one. Here, I really like you know what Vassar Clements brings to the vibe of the song and gives it a little bit more of that true honky-tonk feeling and mm. you know it's one of those funny things to picture vassar clements hanging out with these guys because he's you know he's like an original bluegrass guy yeah,
3: he, he was an older cat
4: yeah and he's playing with uh with jerry and grisman and in olden in the way which by the way like that olden in the way the famous record that you know the boarding house one was recorded only i want to say two months or so after these sessions yeah that's right Yeah, this is August, and by October, they're like putting on one of the greatest bluegrass concerts of all time, which becomes one of the highest-selling bluegrass records.
3: And it was really only recorded because Bear showed up with microphones. Right. (laughs) Right. You know, I'm actually... In contact with Peter Rowan right now oh wow from olden in the way yeah from my book project because he's a Tibetan Buddhist he was in Doc Watson's band Mm -hmm. I want to talk to him a little bit about lineage in folk traditions and spiritual traditions and I know he's got plenty to say (laughs) but obviously there's some overlap here with Vassar on toodaloo even though this is not a folk country Americana album like American Beauty or working man's dead we do get some of that old time flavor on toodaloo
1: say that when your ship comes in
0: first man takes the like it's worth noting I think air air that this air 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 did better on the charts than either American Beauty or working Man's Dead at the time and to your point about tapioca and a sock like the overall sound of this album, Uh, You know, I like to go back and look at what was coming out in 1973 because if you remember way back in the first episode I I sort of posited this theory that like they were actually chasing hits. Yeah, but look what's coming out around this time Uh, houses of the holy goodbye yellow brick road (laughs) countdown to ecstasy yes songs (laughs) raw power by the stooges and dark side of the moon Damn.
3: Well, you know, every one of those records that you just named, besides Raw Power, is a go-to example
0: of a very detailed, realized recording. Yes, and so my experience listening to this is that whereas those all got it so right and i love this album this is probably my favorite dead album
4: Me. is like they got it so wrong on this they're a little right <laughs> well the songs here you know we're fully into the like songs are yeah we're, we're we're fully into like the songs phase of the dead's career right they're not they're yes. they're never again going to put out a record where the entire side b is just sort of faint uh, abstract noises
0: oh
4: um <laughs> But in addition to production choices, I mean, I just have to say, like, I find the brass on Weather Report Suite to be incredibly (laughs) distracting. Yeah, and it's like with fish. there was this phenomenon for many years where like they played those giant country horns shows and people wanted to hear those horns every time the band played that song and here for me the phenomenon is the opposite like I hear those horns and I like I want them gone <laughs> I just find them incredibly yeah. distracting uh, yeah but at
3: least there they're kind of part of the arrangement you know it's baked into the cake I think about something like Let Me Sing Your Blues Away it's got the whole Saturday Night Live band saxophone thing just humping your leg yeah. so- so, I want to talk about Let Me Sing Your Blues Away, which is the only lead vocal by Keith Godshaw in Grateful Dead history. I'm just going to go ahead and say that this is the cat of songs. <laughs> okay.
0: Okay. It, it
3: sounds like fetal alcohol
0: syndrome, little feet. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> well, you know what it also sounds like? It sounds like every post-2000 Fish song. And I have for for years, decades even, struggled to find this connection where people say they think the Fish were sonically influenced by the dead. Like, I've never seen it. And revisiting this one particular song, I'm like, oh, I get it.
4: You know, my reaction to the song is that if the song is a room and you walk into it and Keith is saying he's going to sing the blues away, I have inspected that room from top to bottom, and I I think it worked. (laughs) It's like the poltergeist lady, this house is clean. (laughs) There's no evidence of the blues. You know, the song... The song tests negative for like the St. Louis strain, the Mississippi strain, the Chicago strain. There is no blues to be found.
3: I just find this song creepy. Like, look, I know it's a Robert Hunter lyric, but I picture Keith with those strung out puppy dog eyes singing it to Donna while she irons her hair. Yeah. Um, oh,
0: my God. You, you know, this was the single, right?
3: What is wrong with these guys? I did not know that. It's the second track on the album. Like, it, I get all excited every time I put on Wake of the Flood because I hear Mississippi and I'm like, oh, this is going to be great. And then Keith starts trying to sing my blues away Fuck let's let him do it Is like all I can take of that song.
4: This is a difficult combination of songs to sequence. True, um, and the, and I think the Road Jimmy Stella Blue kind of
3: yeah. Well, that works. Actually, I want to talk about Road Jimmy. It's a uh, song that makes climate diaspora sound super chill.
4: Appropriate today when I was just sitting on my stoop in January Drinking coffee in short sleeves
3: Crazy I'm a sucker for dead reggae I like it But sometimes I worry that the sweatpants are getting a little too comfy
4: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah Jimmy has a little bit more of like a vagueness to it um,
3: Impressionistic Yeah, I mean, it evokes that kind of flood imagery in New Orleans, and that's kind of why I referenced climate change, but it is kind of hard to pin down, and most of the time, I just let it wash right over me.
4: Yeah, but what they did with Road Jimmy, especially, I think, when you get into the 90s, where the outro sort of becomes an all-out Calypso reggae thing is not okay.
3: <laughs> Put all MIDI instruments on the steel drum setting. Turns out that's not very chill. But then you're into Stella Blue, which honestly could be a whole episode, and it will probably be a chapter of my book. Yeah. I mean, I have, I have too much to say about this song, but at the same time, it's like kind of the song that makes me not want to say anything at all. I yeah. get really quiet when it's on. As a payon to impermanence, it's pretty unambiguous, Mm -hmm. but if you look deeper, there's always a kind of newness to it, arising and ceasing in the eternal moment. It all rolls into one. Uh, I'm going to leave it at that, but I will note that this version is incredibly well realized. All the hallmarks of a transcendent Stella are here, present at birth. Mm Mm-hmm. And Donna's backing vocals are in the Elvis gospel ballad tradition. It's just home base for her because she actually sang on those recordings. Right. So let's listen to Stella Blue.
0: You know garcia said about stella blue that it was uh not like any other song and i yeah. think this is important doesn't owe anything to anything else yeah we watched the dead and company web stream from not new year's but the night before and they played this with bob weir singing and it was as heartbreaking as any other version you have ever heard it was fantastic yeah and and it sucked all the air out of the room man,
3: Well, you know, Jerry knew it was special. Yeah. He said he felt like he was born to sing it, but it's yeah. just so interesting that Bob Weir, who has a totally different voice register, you know, phrasing and everything, can take this classic Hunter Garcia song and still wrench something really powerful out of it.
4: It's such a difficult song to talk about because it kind of, you know, on the one hand, it can serve as kind of a Rosetta Stone for the band's entire kind of musical output. On the other hand, it's so unique that... It kind of stands alone. It left me thinking a little bit about this question that we keep coming back to: of like, what do we do with the studio versions of these songs? You know, do we sort of put them in the same bucket and rank them the way we do live versions of the songs? Does this serve as like the band's platonic ideal of what they think the song should be, or is it just a third thing that's completely different?
3: Well, in some ways, this Stella could stand as the definitive Stella Blue. Uh, you know, we all know that towards the end of their run, Jerry was still delivering really poignant versions of this song. And I think that has to do with the character of his voice and, you know, his world weariness and his wisdom, Mm -hmm. all those years piling up gave him additional perspective. But, you know, I'm always sad when this song's over. Well, not sad, but kind of wistful, right? I just want to live there a little longer. And then you flip the record, and you've got Here Comes Sunshine. And, and yeah. honestly, Kevin, this is where I really do uh, buy your theory that the Dead sometimes tried to emulate other bands in the commercial market. Because this sounds yeah. like, you know, another half-assed attempt to be like the Beatles, but in this case, yep. Abbey Road Beatles. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, you know, it's a decent little ditty, but it doesn't really stop me in my tracks. I don't know if you guys have a different view.
0: What is the consensus of this? Because, you know, I've been looking around, and I've seen people say that this is... This is some giant of a track that they look forward to in every set list. And, and uh, I, I've never had that experience. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I don't know what
4: that's about either. Yeah, it's a first set kind of song.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think if people
3: want something bouncy with a sort of fun feel that they can sing along to. But I'd say that China Cat or Scarlet Begonias has those qualities but with a lot more going on musically
4: it's a lesser song for me clearly
3: (laughs) but what comes after it eyes of the world is is a major dead song again uh it was never my favorite musically until i got right with the theme um you know before it would have been like slide two of my powerpoint called why hippies are shit (laughs) But now I see Hunter's <laughs> Lyric for what it is. It's an homage to interconnectedness, and that's what we're waking up to. Like, all of these different experiences that you have, these fucking drug trips and whatever it is, they're all happening in relation to every other thing that's happening. And, you know, sufficiently realize that is bliss. <laughs> <laughs> I will turn off the black light now. <laughs> <laughs>
4: that lyrically you could absolutely put that song forward as like problem
3: superficially
4: yeah right right i think you know i feel differently about it today than i did the first time i heard it and the first time i heard it it felt easy to explain away as just you know sort of pseudo aphoristic mumbo jumbo
3: right but then it like works its weird magic on you
4: there's so many lines in that that keep sort of showing up for me unprompted. You know, sometimes we ride on our horses. Sometimes we walk alone. There's a lot of really powerful ideas.
3: And Hunter's amazing because he takes these great vast concepts and somehow tamps them down into language that we can relate to. Yeah.
0: The other weird thing about this is that I've never associated Prague so much with the dead. And this, Makes it clear, and other points of this album makes it clear that they had at least like a toe in the Prague world. Most of it is due to Phil Lesh, mm-hmm. um, but and and in a way that is, you know how Prague is like sort of overplayed, but makes sense sometimes, and you're ready for pan flutes to break out at any second. <laughs> now that can happen, and th- this is like that.
3: You know, I'd be comfortable calling the Dead lazy Prague. Yeah, okay. You know, I think most of the time they just can't be bothered with that level or that type of intricacy, but sometimes they do back into it.
0: Do you think they were aware of it? Uh,
3: maybe. I mean, they, they did try. Like, you get to stuff like Help on the Way, Slipknot. But, you know, listen, Bob Weir, I would say, is also a pretty progressive cat. Like, even though oh, yeah. I'm not thrilled to see Weather Report Suite in a set, I do like it here. Okay, I mean, he's got an interesting amount of ambition in a band that sometimes has an ambivalent relationship toward ambition. You know, the Dow of the Dead embraces inaction. It's a virtue. Uh, but Bobby played competitive sports, and I think sometimes he brings that sensibility to music and I think he wanted to define himself compositionally which probably wasn't easy given some of the other personalities in the band and the overall you know operating parameters so I salute the effort if not always the result but I do think he's bringing some of that progressive understanding to the band and and to me Weather Report Suite is a really good example of that
4: yeah I mean I think I think Let It Grow is a is is a really as a standalone piece I think outside of the suite for me that song always works well
3: yeah, um, there's a quality, and that quality is very much a weird phenomenon.
4: There's a toughness to Bobby. Yeah. I think Jerry plays sweet mm-hmm. and maybe, you know, forlorn or broken. Um, and, and Bobby doesn't do that as much. Right.
3: Well, his vocal range doesn't support it. Yeah, yeah.
4: and or he and Barlow, you know, they had to be aware, I think, a little bit of a competitive dynamic with, with the Hunter Garcia thing. And in many ways, they you know, as we've said, they form a complete ego. Yeah, But I really kind of like when Barlow tried to go mystical and sort of spout off wisdom and moral lessons, which I think Let It Grow tries to do a little bit.
3: Yeah, it took me a long time to get right with a lot of the Barlow compositions.
4: Because he worked for Dick
3: Cheney? (laughs) It could be part of it. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) We all have our lines that do not get crossed. No, it's more like he can be really on the nose or kind of heavy-handed, whereas Hunter seems to come by his mystical intuition honestly. You know it reveals itself to him in the way that you'd imagine a muse would but you know i I think bob is the right voice for a lot of that stuff and i think it does sort of fit his interests in trying to do rock and roll music outside of a 12-bar blues framework for example
4: i have an important question that maybe has us looking toward the next episode would would this album have been improved by pride of cookamonga (laughs) (laughs)
3: every Grateful Dead album would be improved by Pride of Cucamonga
4: I read that Phil was playing around with that in the studio and they might have recorded uh, an outtake that didn't get used for this album and so it shows up on Mars Hotel
3: (laughs) damn it they could have swapped it out for Let Me Sing Your Blues Away (laughs) (laughs) alright that's gonna do it for another episode of Dead to Me catch us online DeadToMePod.com, socials at DeadToMe.
2: Dead to Me is a Chunky Glasses production on the Osiris Podcast Network. Recorded in Washington, D.C. with hosts Casey Ray and Eduardo Nunes. Executive producer Kevin Hill. See you next time.